Hello and welcome to this episode number 153 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode we hear from Federico Donelli, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Genoa and the author of Turkey in Africa, Turkey's strategic involvement in sub-Saharan Africa, published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. Last week, in addition to putting dynamite under Turkey's relations with various Western countries, President Erdogan went on a four-day tour of Angola, Togo and Nigeria. It was his latest trip to Africa, seeking to deepen Ankara's diplomatic, cultural, economic and defence ties on the continent, building on a very significant push to boost Turkish influence ongoing for well over a decade now. Federico Donelli's book looks in detail at what lies behind Turkey's moves in Africa, the effects they've had on the ground and what we may expect in the coming months and years. But before we get stuck into all of that, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury, including in fact the book that we're discussing in this episode, is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Also, if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Federico Donelli. Obviously, his book is mainly focused on Ankara's push to expand its influence in Africa over the last couple of decades under Erdogan's AKP government. But to set us up with a bit of background, I started by asking Federico to give us a brief overview of relations between Turkey and the African continent from the late Ottoman period to the 2000s. Generally speaking, we can say that the relationship between the Ottoman Empire and, and Africa was mainly a relationship of the Ottoman Empire with the Maghreb, so the North Africa and the former dominion of the Ottoman Empire. So the problem at the beginning was that uh, from the Turkish perspective, or to better say from the Ottoman perspective, there was a general lack of knowledge about the other regions of, of the continent. And this is something that we can also trace back during the period, the beginning of the Republican period, when uh, due to many different factors, the first and probably the most important one was the foreign policy of Turkey following the Mustafa Kemal uh, famous motto, peace at home, peace abroad and peace at home. So there was this kind of isolation in terms of foreign policy or uh, just looking towards the West. So 
Africa became a sort of neglected area, even though Turkey, during the, the following decades of following the establishment of the Republic, tried to, in some way, open a small window of opportunity with some specific country and uh, some other kind of relationship uh, were, of course, related to the Cold War period. So in that sense, we can say there was a kind of uh, nexus between the domestic factors and the international dynamics. And both of them uh, pushed Turkey into an isolated mode. And so Africa was at the same time a sort of neglected continent also among the Turkish public. So that narrative started to change towards the end of the 20th century, essentially. Actually, with the end of the Cold War, new opportunities began to emerge. I wonder if you could just really dwell on those years, really the decade or two before the AKP entered office in 2002, because the period before then was quite an interesting one. period basically began with the election of Turgut Özal as a prime minister in 1983, and then followed straight through, really, th- through to the appointment of uh, Ismail Cem as foreign minister in 1997. You talk about that as being a key period in the book, because that really created the conditions, effectively, for the uh, implementation of the AKP's more ambitious foreign policy in places like the Balkans, like Central Asia, and uh, like Africa. Those preceding decades, it's often under, underappreciated. Could you just talk about how they set the scene for what uh, we've seen in, in more recent years? Yeah, of course. So uh, during the period, the, the 80s, we, we usually we say during the period of Turgut Özal, we had the first big change in Turkey's foreign policy, and we had the beginning of the so-called Özalism. And this idea of Özalism was to open toward different regions, and very similar to the one that AKP 20 years later decided to implement. The Ozalism and the opening at that time was mostly related to the Middle East and to the Gulf states due to the need of financial capital. And at the same time, immediately after the end of the Cold War, it was related, as you as you mentioned, toward the Central Asia, former Soviet Republic. And this was more related to the space of opportunity that, according to some uh, advisors of Turgut Özal and also closer to the army, was created by the collapse of the Soviet Union and in some way also the United States So in a good manner, in a good way, this uh, involvement of Turkey. At the same time, Turgut Azal was important because he changed the perception of an important sector that is the industrial sector of Turkey. We have the growing presence of new middle and small companies closer to the power, and these companies were among the first actors that trying to open toward new market. At that time, Africa was still a sort of vacuum market. I mean that there were not so many extra-regional actors except for the former European uh, powers. But uh, during the end of the 90s, so following Turgut Özal, as you mentioned, Ismail Jam was the real architect of the opening toward Africa. According to him, Africa was a kind of alternative, not to Europe, but to the just Western-oriented policy. 
So according to him, the Africa could be an important asset in Turkish foreign policy, also in relation with European countries. So that's why he decided to try to draw this plan, the African Action Plan. But at that time, Turkey lack of enough resources in order to implement that plan. That's what I really liked about the book was this awareness of the bigger picture, really. These kind of really deeper, almost historic shifts that are underway in the kind of global balance of power, essentially, and the new opportunities that opened up that really are deeper than just the whims of one government or another or one particular ideology or another. You talk uh, in the book, there's a quote, you say, awareness that Africa, in particular sub-Saharan Africa, has witnessed a transition from dependence on former colonial powers to dependence on emerging powers. Behind the so-called new scramble for Africa, there's a deeper shift in the extra-regional actors' leverage that will unquestionably influence the future of the region. So we're talking essentially there about uh, relative changes in the global balance of power, really. And uh, obviously, in a process like that, new opportunities do emerge for emerging middle powers like Turkey. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, Africa could be assumed as a kind of litmus test for the future, or to better say, for the current and future global balances. Because in Africa, we can find many extra-regional powers, and among them... There is also, uh, of course, Turkey and other Middle Eastern powers that try to exploit the vacuum created by the end of the Cold War. At the same time, they are trying to exploit the fact that China, that is the most powerful country, extra-regional country on the continent, uh, has a sort of lack of interest for political things, for political issue in Africa. For China, the most important things is the economic interest, the investment, and uh, this is the most important part of, uh, of China involvement in Africa. So under this sector, under the economic sector, we have a sector, a political sector of a vacuum with the United States that has not a clear interest in Africa. At the same time, we have a space for some countries that would like to find a new place in the international system and international balances. And for Turkey, this is a good opportunity because it could add the opportunity to experiment new tools, new strategy, new kind of rhetoric, and so on. And this is the same for other Middle Eastern countries. And this is why I believe that in the coming years, it could be a new competition arena. It's, nowadays, it is a competition arena, but it will be more in the coming years. So we're talking about there the deeper structural changes that are underway. But of course, the AKP has been one of the driving forces of Turkey's expansion, really, into Africa over the last decade or two. In 2005, so a couple of years after it came to office, it declared this year of Africa, declared essentially a, a new focus on investment opportunities, diplomatic opportunities, etc., uh, across the African continent. And really, it's not looked back since then. You know, it's, it's expanded quite a lot. Loads of new embassies opening, et cetera, et cetera. Loads of new business partnerships. So before we come on to the kind of more concrete examples of what all that means in practice, uh, I just wonder if we could talk about the rhetorical aspects, uh, actually, of how Turkey tries to appeal to its African partners 
and also how it reflects those back home. Uh, I just wonder, could you talk about, you know, how does Turkey frame its cooperation rhetoric to appeal to potential partners? And related to that, how does it distinguish itself essentially from competitors or perhaps traditional outside powers on the continent? Okay, in terms of rhetoric, Turkey presents itself to the African people and to the African country as uh, a potential alternative to the traditional powers, I mean, the European United States uh, and uh, also in some way Russia, even though Russia could be considered also an emerging extra-regional power in Africa. At the same time, an alternative in comparison with uh, China, because uh, as I mentioned before, China has this kind of assertive and in some cases aggressive approach uh, to African countries, and this is why many Africans still consider China as a kind of neo-imperial country or uh, the China approach, Chinese approach as a kind of imperialist approach. Anyway, Turkey presents itself as an alternative to both of them, also try to exploit some kind of uh, cultural affinities. And with cultural affinities, of course, I refer to uh, religion, and religion is an important aspect, but we have to consider that Muslim is important religion in Africa, but it's not the biggest one and it's not the only one. At the same time, in Africa, Turkey tried to present itself as a potential big brother or big sister that could in some way promote the African claims within some international organization. And this is very common when we saw the meeting or the statement or public speeches of Turkish officials with African countries or during African trips. They always talk about the idea to reform the international governance and to change the global governance. The famous motto of the President Erdogan is that the, the, the world is biggest than five. And this is something with a sort of appeal among some African countries. And finally, and this is another interesting aspect related to this idea of change in some way the global governance, is a kind of what I call third worldism. I mean, Turkey tried to present itself as the real power that could uh, in some way represent the future of the African countries. And this is related, of course, in terms of rhetoric, to the growth rate during the first decade of the AKP. So Turkey presents itself as the example, we can say, the, the correct or the, the right path that the African countries can follow to the upcoming years. What about uh, how history and the Ottoman past is uh, kind of mobilized? Because uh, it seems that that has quite a significant role in the Turkish discourse on Africa, both under the surface and on the surface. So how does Turkey use that history to make its appeal? The discourse of uh, related to the Ottoman Empire, and to make it easier, we can say the neo-Ottomanism that Turkey usually use or spread around the regions, in Africa assume a kind of different declination or dimension that is related to create an alternative to the European countries. Turkey usually presents itself as a country that has a so-called clean slate. So Turkey has not 
any colonial past. And when someone just say, okay, but what about the Ottoman Empire? What about the lands that were under the Ottoman control, including in the Eastern Africa? They always say that this is more related to a kind of big community of big empire. And sometimes they recall the big Hummus or the Muslim community and uh, in some way try to reformulate the history and the historical events. For example, the, one of the most important uh, events, historical events related to the rhetoric and the Neo-Ottomanism in Africa is during the 16th century when the Portuguese were in the Eastern Africa and the Sultan sent some of these navy and uh, some of his ships in order to protect the African lands. And this is called as a kind of uh, battle against colonialism or imperialism. And finally, if I have to say another interesting thing related to the Neo-Ottomanism, there is in some way the attempt to, I don't want to say rewrite, but to present the Ottoman history in a similar way of the African history. When sometimes uh, Turkish officials talk about uh, the last century of the Ottoman Empire, so during the period in, during which the European powers trying to fracture the Ottoman Empire, they compare with the first scramble for Africa, so the imperial wave into the continent. So this was to try to create a sort of proximity in terms of historical events with the African people. Now, this is a broad question with uh, multiple answers, I suspect. But what about the image of Turkey in African eyes? You know, how are these steps being greeted, generally speaking? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, it's not easy to generalize. And we are talking about many countries, many different people. Of course, the image of Turkey, especially in that country in which Turkey invested more during the last decade in terms of humanitarian investment, development aid, and so on, they perceive Turkey as a good partner. In some way, there are some kind of suspect because the, the, the real question of many African peoples and many African decision makers is, okay, but uh, is there any hidden agenda behind or it's only because they want to create a win-win solution as Turkey is trying to present its involvement? Yeah, generally, this is what I what I know, what I received by my research is is a general positive feeling. I know that is a, nowadays is a cultural phenomenon, but the Turkish soap opera also are spreading in some African countries, for example, Ethiopia uh, or Sudan, and this is uh, in some way this is useful because they show the the lifestyle, the Turkish lifestyle, and again, in some way, of course, this creates an alternative in the mind of many African peoples. And many of them also, in some countries, I, again, I, I do example of Sudan, many of young people have also the opportunity to win scholarship. So they are more attracted to apply also to, to Turkish scholarship. Of course, there is the other side of the story, and uh, the other side of the story is that Turkey, in other countries, 
as in some way trigger some bad things uh, like corruption and this kind of thing. So, yeah, of course, there is always a two side of the moon. That's that's my answer. So what about how all this is reflected back home in Turkey? Because Turkey's outreach, its soft power, its hard power steps in arenas, they're very powerful tools for the government to basically demonstrate to voters Turkey's rising international prestige and clout, as they put it. So just talk about that aspect, how moves in sub-Saharan Africa are used to burnish the government's domestic political messaging. Yeah, it was it was an important thing at the beginning, especially around 2011, when Turkey became popular also at the international level and international media related to the Somalia crisis. So at that time was something that domestically useful for AKP and generally speaking for the government because it showed that Turkey counts at the international level. And that was something that AKP since the beginning tried to, to reach the popularity at the international level. Recently, I mean, following the following the 2016 coup and the COVID crisis and the economic crisis related to the COVID, there is a growing skepticism related to, to the involvement in Africa because many people, many Turkish discourses also from political parties uh, is trying to say, okay, why we are going to Africa, why we are spending so much money in Africa and what we have in, in exchange with, with this policy, nothing. We, we have to invest that money in Turkey. So in some way, it's more related to nowadays to the constituency of the AKP, because especially for the conservative sector of this constituency, there's still the idea to, we can say, the humanitarian idea to help other people, especially Muslim people in Africa. Now, let's talk about Somalia, because that is one of the key relationships, one of the key centres for Turkey's Africa policy. The Horn of Africa more generally has become a centre for Turkey's humanitarian initiatives, its economic investments and political partnerships. But of course, military cooperation is very important as well. There's a major Turkish military base in Somalia. I think the biggest Turkish base overseas is based in Somalia, it was opened a few years ago, and it's the centre of uh, various training programmes that are part of that partnership between the two countries. So how and why has Turkey's partnership with Somalia emerged? You know, how does Somalia fit into that bigger picture? The emergence of the Turkish role in Somalia is, I think that this is more the most important example of also opportunism of Turkey. Opportunism not in the bad sense, bad meaning of the word. I mean, Turkey at that time saw an opportunity. The opportunity was that there was a country in the middle of a huge crisis, a huge uh, humanitarian crisis, and many years of uh, civil wars, instability, anarchy, and there was no international actor that would like to intervene, that trying to change the things. So Turkey decided to, and it was a gamble, decided to invest a lot in, in Somalia. And I think, and I wrote in the book as well, that this was a, the turning point of the African policy of Turkey, because since that moment, Turkey 
did not have any political interest into the African context. Uh, they were more interested into the economic opportunities, the humanitarianism, tried to exploit a kind of niche diplomacy, so the humanitarian diplomacy. But at the same time, they didn't care too much about political issues within countries. Following that moment, when they decided to invest a lot into humanitarian sector in Somalia, and they understood that in order to change in some way that crisis, that situation, they also have to invest a lot in state and institution building in that country. So in order to promote a state building process, they also have to provide at the beginning and then to train security forces in order to guarantee security. And that is probably the most tough issue in Somalia, as we as we know that al-Shabaab is still in action and is still important, no state actors on the ground. So Somalia is uh, the turning point, but at the same time, nowadays is most important things for Turkey because If Turkey fail in Somalia, Turkey will lose probably a lot of uh, popularity, a lot of credibility, not only in Africa, but also in other in other regions, for example, in the Balkans uh, or in Central Asia as well. And investments in Somalia, they seem to have pretty deep roots as well. I mean, sometimes you see sort of comments that are being made where People are basically really associating these kind of policies with Erdogan, the president. But your book makes the point that these things have deeper roots than than just one man. Once he leaves office, if he ever leaves office, do you foresee these kind of investments continuing, deepening? Or how do you, how do you see his role in, in pushing all these things forward? Yeah, the the trend, uh, especially following the, the coup, the 2016 coup, is that the African policy is becoming more and more a JAKP policy. So, of course, there is an interconnection between the interest of AKP, so the party and the cycle of uh, important companies, important groups, economic companies and groups uh, related to the party and to the government uh, and the policy into Africa. Somalia, but not only Somalia, also, again, example, Sudan, they are country in which uh, Turkey has invested a lot, but without, a, we can say, an institutional framework. And this is one of the weakness points of, uh, of Turkish approach to Africa. As you, as you said, uh, that the main risk is that with a, a change of government or just the change of leader, probably some of the contacts, some of the connection uh, will lose. So that's the biggest problem, that in 15 years, almost uh, 20 years, Turkey does not create any institutional framework to its African policy. I wonder if we could also talk about the uh, Gulen movement, because that once played a very key role in Turkey's ambitions in Africa. It was a key kind of soft power for spearheading those investments through uh, educational initiatives, particularly culture, obviously business. And obviously, we've seen a 180-degree turn, basically. It's been uh, declared effectively a terror organization in Turkey, outlawed 
And now overseas, it's effectively a kind of anti, anti-Turkish government lobbying force in various countries. Uh, and obviously the situation is different in different countries. So it's a bit of a complicated picture. And, and that goes for Africa as well, you know, because some African countries are still warmer to the Gulen movement than others. But could you just update us on what's the latest situation with the Gulenists in Africa and Turkey's attempt to basically bring them back, sometimes extraordinarily rendition them? Just update us on that whole scene. Yeah, as you said, the most important, or to better say, the things that is more of more interest for Turkey is the education and cultural stuff of the Gulenists. Because in Africa, in many African countries, there are still many schools, many magazines, and also some cultural centers related to the movement. And that is a huge problem because uh, for Turkey, because they are pressure in some way, the local government, uh, and uh, they have a good leverage on them. Because in many cases, we have uh, the son of the daughter of uh, some important African policymakers that uh, attended the Gulen school. And this was a way to establish a direct contact with the power, with the local power. It was a kind of uh, informal tie between the Gulenist and the uh, African policymakers. Of course, this was important also for Turkey because uh, all of this work was useful to Turkey during the opening period. So when Turkey decided in which country open an embassy, open a tick office and so on, they follow in many cases the indication of the Gulenists because they were the first over there. Nowadays, the Gulenist school are still an interesting thing also for the African countries because in some way it gives a sort of leverage also to the African countries. During the latest visit of uh, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, we don't know what happened during the exchange, but what we know is that following a memorandum of understanding between the two countries, six Gulen schools still open in Ethiopia under the name of uh, Associated Rainbow were closed and immediately passed through the Mari Foundation, that is a state agency that now controls many of these schools. Now, Turkey is obviously not the only outside player making moves in Africa. I wonder if you could talk about the rivalry that it has with other outside actors the competition in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly with players like the UAE, China, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, France, and others? We, we can say that there are two kinds of levels of competition. I, at the first level or the top level where we have the great powers, where we have China. Of course, Turkey in some way could compete with China, especially on the economic uh, issues and the uh, most important on infrastructure contract, where effectively Turkey tried to, in some way, create some problem to Chinese investment, because again, Turkey represents a good opportunity, as well as in terms of uh, manufactured things, Turkey could sell better stuff at the cheaper cost of the Western countries. So in some way with China, the competition is more related to the economic interest. Uh, with France, uh, of course, the relationship has changed during the last five, six years when France decided to 
be involved into the East Med issue and Libya. So Turkey and France were on two different sides. So in some way, Turkey, this was not the only reason, but in some way, I believe that Turkey decided to improve its involvement in the Sahel area in order to create some pressure to France and to the French army presence there. And finally, there is a second level, and on this second level, there are more regional dynamics. And when I talk about regional dynamics, I mean the Middle Eastern dynamics. And especially in the Eastern Africa, in the Horn of Africa, we can trace some of the same competition race of the Middle East between UAE, Saudi Arabia on one side, and Turkey and Qatar on the other side. Of course, also these kind of balances are changing following the last six months. So probably in the upcoming months, we will see a, a less tension relationship on, on the African soil. And this could be important, especially again for Somalia, because in Somalia we will have on November the election. So if the Middle Eastern countries and Turkey, of course, too, could find a common candidate to support, it could be a better thing for Somalia in order to stabilize the country. Now, the book is largely focused on sub-Saharan Africa, but Turkey's obviously also made big investments in North Africa, the Maghreb, in recent years, military, economic and political. Chief among those, obviously, is Libya. How important is North Africa in facilitating Turkey's sub-Saharan ambitions? I, I don't think that this is the priority. I, I mean, I don't think that Libya is a priority of Turkey related to the sub-Saharan African policy. That was the place of Somalia. Somalia at the beginning was perceived as a gateway toward the sub-Saharan Africa. Of course, nowadays, when we talk about Libyan policy, for Turkey, this could be a sort of hotspot in order to reach the Western Africa and again the Sahel. So there are growing interest of Turkey, not only in the south of Libya, but also in Chad, in Mali. So we can see how Turkey is shifting toward the Western Africa. And this is a new develop of African policy. So no more focus especially on the Eastern Africa, but toward sub-Saharan Western Africa. So, yeah, that's, that's the only way in which I, I consider Libya. The second important aspect related to Libya, maybe it's not a special link with Libya, but is related is the defense sector. Libya, as well as Syria and Nagorno-Karabakh, where all of them were scenarios where Turkey tested in some way and showed the power of uh, its new drones and, uh, and also the power of some weapon that Turkey is using and Turkey is selling to, to the government, to the Libyan government. And this is important because along with the infrastructure, the other important sector that Turkey wants to expand in Africa is the defense sector. So Turkey wants to find new clients among the African countries. Now, the book gives a largely positive assessment of Turkey's moves in Africa. It uh, largely overlooks some of those military investments uh, that you just mentioned there and some of the some of the rather murky connections, you might say, to kind of militant groups 
in Chad and elsewhere, perhaps. And obviously, the Turkish government at the moment is not the most transparent government in the world. And a critic might say that, you know, part of this push into Africa is carries a potential to basically reinforce authoritarianism, both in Turkey and in the countries themselves. It's important not to overlook that aspect. You know, perhaps it's too easy to take the kind of positive push that is there rhetorically, a kind of face value. Looking under the surface, some of these concerns might uh, might start to emerge. Yeah, yeah, the, definitely. That's uh, that's an important point. Again, there is a there are two kind of different rhetoric, especially related to Turkish officials and some cases Turkish scholars. There are some of them that present the involvement of Turkey in Africa as the uh, perfect history or uh, the gold story of a country that would like to improve the living condition of African peoples, and that's of course is not the reality. On the other hand, there are some other that say, no, everything that Turkey is doing in Africa is nothing, is creating nothing. And that's not true again. I believe that there are some good points related to the involvement of Turkey. Probably the most interesting and good point is related to the, the idea of uh, pluralism of development. I mean that uh, what the Turkey case shows is that there's not only single way for development and Turkey could represent in some way a new way of development for some countries different by both the Western development and the Chinese model, we can say. At the same time, as I mentioned in the book, when we talk about the economic investment, when we talk about the development aid by Turkey, we have to consider that Turkey aid has no conditionality. This means that Turkey has no interest to develop, to promote a better democracy, a better institution, a better human rights, or to better say, do not promote related to the investment. So, of course, the major risk is that in some way Turkey could export also the idea of uh, autocratic country as a model. So this is a big risk, and especially in some countries where there is a general uh, lack of uh, transparency also. That's a problem. That could be a big problem. And what, just to conclude, one thing some listeners might be thinking is that a lot of these initiatives are quite dependent on the Turkish economy being healthy. And obviously at the moment we're seeing um, some significant economic problems in Turkey. And you talk in the book actually about this potential gap between expectations and actual capabilities. So just end by reflecting on that, you know, how potentially will economic struggles affect or adjust Turkey's moves in, in Africa? I uh, honestly, I think that uh, the country in which the, the decision of Turkey, for example, to reduce the investment, to reduce resources that could affect the most is, the, is Somalia, of course. And I would like to take this opportunity to link also Somalia to another case that is very sensitive nowadays, that is the Afghanistan case. In Afghanistan, Turkey invested a lot until 2014 and then decided to shift some investment from Afghanistan to towards the neighboring regions. This was related to the change of or to a shuffle of 
balances within Middle East. So in the case of Somalia, what could happen is that if Turkey decided to shift some resources from Somalia to other countries or just Turkey, or just downgrade the investment, the annual investment, as it has already done during the last two years, this could create a sort of vacuum and more instability in the state building and security forces building process in Somalia. So, yeah, I, I still believe that there is a kind of lack of capabilities by Turkey because the financial crisis, the economic situation uh, is a problem, domestic problem, and Turkey has not too much resources to invest abroad, especially in some kind of adventure, like in some African countries. That was Federico Donelli. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 153. Remember, you can purchase his book for a 30% discount if you sign up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Indeed, all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members for a 30% discount. In addition to the warm glow that you get from supporting the podcast, members also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, or via Twitter, or via our Facebook page, or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, before I go, let me just remind you once again to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.